It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, good day and welcome to Hard Hats and High Viz, and it's uh, episode 18. And joining me, as usual, is Hong Kong Jack. How are you, mate? Excellent, Jack. Good to hear from you. Uh, yes, and I am Jack the Insider, as you well know. And uh, I just want to kick off our program by reminding our listeners, as per usual, that we love to hear from you. We've got some, we got some letters this week and we'll be going through them. Um, but uh, we'd love to hear from you. Criticisms, comments, remarks, questions, anything you like. Scathing, defamatory Abuse we'll even deal with, and uh, you can drop us a line at the conditional release program at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter. Uh, and my DMs are always open at Jack the Insider. Well, Jack, here we are, 15th of August. There's lots going on, but what caught my eye were the Packer emails. This is a this is a series of emails that Jamie Packer sent that alleges. It's, uh, yes, well, I guess we have to call it an allegation that James paid uh, former treasurer, now chairman at Nine Media, uh, with a $300,000 commission to get him closer to the then gaming minister, Michael O'Brien, Jack. 300 large. Nice 300 check. large. Wouldn't the ATA be going, oh, well, let's have a, let's have a, just a quick flip through the, uh, the tax returns there just to see what's there? Yeah. Well, I'm sure it'll be there, you know. Oh, well, yes, so I, I wouldn't presume any otherwise, but it would probably be worth having a look all mm. the same. Um, yes, yeah, so a secret lobbying fee being paid. So Michael O'Brien, I believe, is back now. He's uh, spent some time. He's a former leader of the opposition, uh, former Marcelin boy too, Jack. Is he? Oh, yeah, there you I go. think he is. Yeah, pretty sure. And, um, uh, and uh, of course, he was the... Now, there's no suggestion in any way that uh, he's uh, misbehaved, but he was leader of the opposition and then... Uh, but then who hasn't been leader of the opposition in Victoria? <laughs> well, they do have a bit of a merry-go-round approach to it all. Uh, and I think he's Shadow Attorney-General at the moment because, uh, um, uh, unsurprisingly, the rest of the front bench there and Victorian Liberal Party or Coalition is, is basic. Did, no one had a law degree. So they had to give him the gig. They had to get him back from uh, get him back from the cheap seats, and now he's back there. So it's no suggestion in any way that he was involved in anything undue. But it would seem that James has paid. At least he claims he has paid Peter Costello three hundred k. Can I just read some of these emails to you? I, I, I presume some of our listeners have already seen them. This is a direct email to Peter Costello. You were my secret crown lobbyist, Peter. In twenty eleven, I personally paid you three hundred k. CPH in brackets did anyway, you didn't want the Crown Directors to know, to lobby for me for Crown. Your job was to get me closer to Michael O'Brien. And then he goes on with a bit of a character assessment. You're one of the biggest hypocrites I've ever met in my life, Peter. I think you should resign from your public positions and get on with your life again after you do that. Wow. Ouch. Ouchie. Wow. And then on to James Chesel, who's also on the board at Nine Media. He says, you remind me of your chairman, Costello. 
I think, no, you both lack transparency, integrity and character. I am staggered that your morale, typo, moral compass points so far away from True North. I have nothing but contempt for you, James. Please do not contact me again unless it's with a lawsuit, which I would relish. Just FYI, fuck off out of my life. So that's pretty blunt assessment. Yeah, yeah, I sort of read them and thought we know he's had some mental health issues. Was he having? A, was he in the middle of a sort of a mental health um, episode? Yeah, these are all dated right? July, and according to my reading of matters around James, that he's in pretty good nick at the moment. Yeah, well, it could be. Yeah, but it's just all a bit odd, really. Yeah. Yes. Well, look, the very first email reads: I trust everyone on this email chain except James Chesel and on the chain with Peter Fitzsimmons, Lisa Wilkinson, Carl Stefanovic, James Chesel, who got Joe Aston from the Finn Review, Andrew Denton, of course, and Matthew Grounds, who I don't know. Uh, I, I trust everyone on this email chain except James Chesel, who I think lacks transparency, lacks integrity and lacks character. For the record, Crown Unmasked was, was a great story, great journalism in the best sense. I will always be ashamed that some of the bad things that happened at Crown happened on my watch. Nick McKenzie definitely knew more about what was really happening at Crown than I did. And he's referring there to the investigative journalist, Nick McKenzie, who's a very, very fine investigative journalist. And we'll get to some of his latest work lately. So what happens now, Jack? Just He's in form, isn't he, Nick McKenzie? <laughs> he's got plenty to do with Jack. Um, does, does Costello have to respond to this? I would say no. Well, you just let it go. Just let it hang there. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm not sure. I, I, I think uh, a chairman of a, a media organisation would have to come out and say, I did or I didn't. I wasn't chair at the time, and I'm not quite sure if, what he was up to in 2011. Um, but these are all emails dated uh, the tw- between the 23rd and the 24th of July of this year from James Packer. Anyway, yes, uh, <laughs> he knows how to give you a slapping on email. We know that now. So we'll see what ha- what eventuates and whether Peter Costello actually responds. There's no, um, because he wasn't a member of parliament, there's no question that uh, of him being a secret lobbyist uh, would, would breach any sort of laws or any, indeed any sort of protocols if, if he got 300 large from uh, James Packer to uh, uh, cuddle up to Michael O'Brien. That's, you know, it might be a bit unseemly, but it's uh, there's actually nothing wrong with it. No, oh. can't see anything wrong with it myself. I, I just don't see an upside in, in, in Costello getting down and, um, and getting into the, the bear pit and having a wrestle with uh, with James Packer. Over Put the bat up, just let it go through to the keeper. Yep. All right. Now, uh, over the weekend, there was a double murder in Sydney. Two women were shot dead, uh, and one who has organised crime links, although there's no suggestion that she's in any way, uh, has any sort of criminal uh, history or background herself. Uh, as a mother of two, Lametta Fadala, 48, and hairdresser Amy Hazuri, 39, were murdered on Saturday night in Reeves, and there was extraordinary audio picked up by a very fine young journalist at the Australian by the name of Liam Mendes. That's fantastic work. Uh, it would seem that eight rounds were fired, uh, so that would tell me that they basically emptied the clip. Uh, the shooters emptied the clip. And uh, look, it's a terrible crime, of course. But this is what interested me about it. Superintendent Doherty from New South Wales Police said there is no evidence at all that it's linked to the current conflict. That's the sort of gang wars that have consumed Sydney's West, killing 11 people in two years. He says there's no evidence at all that it's linked to the current conflict or any other conflict. We have to look at this matter on its own. Of course, 
Superintendent Doherty goes on to say, we keep our mind open to any other links or any other types of conflict, but at the moment there is no information or evidence to suggest it, and that it is involved uh, in Sydney's gang wars. But the motive for this one still is unclear, says Superintendent Doherty. It appears to be a targeted attack. It appears the 48-year-old woman had, has had some links in the past, but we've obviously got to look at our current relationships and business associations, her previous relationships, her previous associations. They're the things we're doing now, and we're determined to get answers. He went on to say, and this is the thing that interested me, Jack, uh, New South Wales Police Superintendent went on to say, criminals just don't care about old underworld norms and were now attacking women and family members of their targets, which is true. It's really unusual, he said. There used to be an unwritten law with the criminal element, especially in organised crime, criminal element. You don't touch family, you don't touch women, he said yesterday. I think that the rules of engagement have been thrown out the window. It's disregarded now. Is that true, Jack? Well, you're the expert on um, uh, on on this sort of crime. Um, unwritten rules, though, you know, they're they're kind of not not, not very reliable, are they? But it, it certainly was. There's a long history of this, and we can go back to the sort of Chow Hayes in Sydney days, that there was a line of demarcation that never involved family, uh, wives, uh, children, families were kept out of it. Um, as old Chow himself used to refer to squareheads. And they were non-combatants. They were people you could rob them, but uh, the violence and so forth stayed within the lines of uh, the criminals themselves. That the, you, you could you could bash, you could stab, you could kill uh, uh, the criminals themselves. But I'm not sure that this, you know, that that Chow Hayes period goes well back into uh, uh, pre World War Two days uh, and beyond. Um, but I'm not sure that we've always had that. That goes back to the Razor Gang days, really. It goes quite, quite well, well before that. Yeah, look, I can tell you that there was a murder in 1982 of uh, Sue Smith and Terence Basham uh, up in Mwollombar. Um Both of those were executed, almost certainly by Chris Flannery, uh, and, uh, and uh, that was a particularly appalling crime. But when Chris got in there, uh, Smith and Basham had been involved in, uh, in a drug uh, trafficking uh, group that had links with uh, uh, painters and dockers in Melbourne. In fact, uh, Basham uh, was a painter, painter and docker himself, uh, and they'd sort of gone out on their own, and the, uh, the criminals involved had obviously called for their, for their, for their execution. Now, Flannery broke into the place, and um, they were there. Uh, uh, he shot dead Sue Smith and Terence Basham, and they had a two-year-old, two-year-old child, Jack, and uh, Flannery basically put the child into the cot and um, and and covered it with a blanket and uh, went on his way. So he'd yeah. sort of broken one rule, but then retained the other one. And then a call was made within about twenty-four hours to Smith's uh, father, who travelled down from Brisbane to Mwollombar and found the child had been left there for about thirty-six hours. Charles now living in, in, in the UK and has come out and spoken about, uh, she has no memory of the event, of course, but has come out and spoken about what it's like to lose your parents in such grisly, violent ways. So I would disagree with Mr Doherty, or Superintendent Doherty, that these that the rule book had been thrown out. At any event, early days of an investigation shouldn't be leaping to too many conclusions at this stage. 
Yes, look, it's going to be a very comprehensive murder investigation. It is a most appalling crime. Two women uh, just going quietly about their business, uh, uh, shot dead in what appears to be an execution-style uh, double murder. And we'll keep an eye on that and we'll, we'll see what happens in the weeks and months to come. Uh, Jack Nick McKenzie, as we mentioned before, always a busy boy. Uh, there's been a joint 60 Minutes 9 media investigation led by him, which is uh, which has revealed that uh, exploitation of the National Disability Insurance Scheme is costing taxpayers up to a billion uh, dollars a year, including, and, and these billion dollars have not been nickel and dimed by uh, uh, general citizens, but that this has been subject to um, exploitation by organised crime groups, Jack? Well, uh, history would tell us that whenever you, um, and whenever a government brings in a new entitlement, uh, there will be uh, people who will test the limits of that entitlement by getting what they can out of it. And in such a way, Jack, that this is organised. So we're not, we're not talking about nickel and dime fraud, as I say, this is, um, it is being preyed upon by organised crime. This is what the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission Chief Michael Fallon said. He described the rorting as fraudulently skimming, uh, being used for the wholesale purchase of narcotics from overseas. So this is the exploitation of the NDIS is being used almost like a, a means to obtain cash to go on and purchase narcotics uh, and to obtain seed funding for their organised criminals' broader illegal activity. A crime-fighting boss said his agency had detected ghosting or the creation of fake NDIS clients, the systemic inflation of, uh, inflating of invoices, payment for services that are never provided, and networks of facilitators, including doctors, pharmacists, training facilities, accounts and lawyers, who help criminals exploit the scheme. Michael Fallon has called for a multi-agency task force to co combat the problem. A minister for the NDIS and the founder of it, Bill Shorten, said, I think any dollar which gets ripped off between taxpayers and people on the schemes is too high. He told uh, this is a, he, he said this uh, with a, an interview with Patricia Carvelis this morning. I think there is a problem. He said, I said it before the election and since the election, I've started alerting colleagues, pushing the agency and talking to state ministers about the need for government agencies to work together to combat the scourge of fraud. Uh, Shorten said the NDIS rorting appears to be occurring in two or three ways. He said one was through coercion, this is the quote, and other criminal tactics, accessing the accounts and putting in invoices. So that's one way. But he said, I also suspect that there's ghosting where false invoices and false clients might be made up. I want to find out if that's true. But then there's another way. It's just the padding of bills by people who might be not connected to organised crime, but they're just robbing the scheme. I also worry that the fraud or overpayment is occurring through a lack of scrutiny of the invoices. Uh, Shorten accused the Morrison government of making it harder for genuine people to get onto the NDIS as an easy fix to chasing actual fraud. He went on to say, I'm meeting the agency today. I want to satisfy myself that the resources for fraud detection are what they should be. And if we need more resources, we have to find them because frankly, it'll pay for itself if we could stop some of the money being ripped off. 
that is, Jack, you would understand that the NDIS people with serious disabilities are being held off the scheme uh, because there's not enough money in it. But here we here we see over a billion dollars plus estimated going out of the scheme every year due to uh, criminal activity and, and often organised criminal activity. This would be something I'd approach with caution, to be honest. Um, uh, like I said, every, every time governments start a new scheme, whether it's compensation for motor vehicle accident victims or um, uh, a, a new workers' compensation scheme, there are attempts to push the boundaries. And on a number of occasions in the past, people have made allegations that there's wide-scale systemic fraud going on, but they very rarely ever stack up when the investigation's completed. So I'd be cautious about this. I, I'd just like to make a comment um, that, that fraud, general fraud, is rarely investigated unless it reaches a certain level of money lost. Uh, that the police, because fraud is such a difficult investigation, requires uh, in, enormous resources and manpower from police, that if you, for example, or if a person, for example, was um, had, had defrauded a company of, say, let's say twenty thousand dollars, the police would not necessarily get involved, uh, and that's because they simply don't have the resources to conduct an investigation, which would lead to a prosecution. Do you remember the allegations? I think it was called the Greek conspiracy um, uh, uh, case, and I think it involved motor vehicle accidents, but there were allegations that there was a whole systemic corruption thing going on with motor vehicle accident, um, uh, personal injuries compensation in, uh, in and around Sydney. Um, uh, and, and it was a, a big splash story, a bit like this one, um, and in the end it sort of went nowhere. Yeah, if you, I would simply say, if you're looking at a relatively low scale fraud, you are probably you, you might suffer some, uh, you might su suffer some um, uh, form of kickback. You might be kicked off the NDIS, for example, if you're overcharging on invoices and those sorts of things. Um, but it's almost, uh, it's almost uh, that sort of low level fraud is not going to lead to criminal charges being laid. I hope, and I, I hope I haven't told our listeners. Uh, that they can probably get away with a bit of fraud as long as it's not too big. But it, it is the case. I can tell you for a certainty. Yeah, well, well, well certainly, certainly there will be there will be people who are pushing the boundaries on the NDIS because there are people who push the boundaries on every yeah. government entitlement scheme. Yeah, um, but I've just I'm, I'm just instinctively cynical that that, that, that that it's a widespread systemic approach because that's very hard to, to, to pull together. There's too many moving parts. I, I might be wrong, but, I, but I, would, I would approach this with caution. Look, I would say, Jack, that it's, it's actually very rare for us to hear from Michael Phelan, the uh, Commissioner of uh, the Australian yeah. of, of the ACIC. Um, it's a, it's a, an organisation that essentially operates in secret. Uh, and it's very, very rare. If he's called for a multi-agency task force to combat the problem, if he is of the genuine view that money being skimmed out of the NDIS is of sufficient uh, quantity uh, to be used as sort of seed funding for, for organised criminal networks, uh, then that would be a pretty good thing to do. Um, <clears throat> but, um, yes, uh, we'll keep an eye on that story. I'm sure there's more... Nick uh, Nick often releases on the on the Sunday with the um, 
with a follow-up to come. Yeah, with a follow-up to come. So I'm, bound, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some more coming along the way, Jack. And moving on now, one of the really big stories of the weekend. Now, we used to call Russ Hins the Minister for Everything, Jack, didn't we? Uh, he was the Minister for, I think, Police, Roads, Local Governments. Very importantly, the Minister for Racing. He was indeed the Minister for Racing. He was indeed the Minister for Racing during the fine cotton fiasco. But uh, he, he wasn't at the time the Minister for Police because... He was uh, quite unhappy with the uh, the dodgy commissioner at the time and uh, made that clear. So the dodgy commissioner at the time went to Joe and said, I can't work with this bloke. So uh, Rusk Rus lost the job uh, and he was the minister for almost everything. But Scott Morrison, Jack, he's he's taken, has he taken a leaf out of Russ's book? Because he was, as we understand it, the minister for, yeah, prime minister, uh, minister for health, Minister for Industry and Resources, and Minister for Finance, Jack. And furthermore, um, with the exception of the uh, actual Minister for Health, Greg Hunt, none of the other ministers seem to know. <laughs> it's very odd. It is bizarre, isn't it? It's really strange. What do you think he was doing? What, what, what sort of mentality are we, working, are, we, are we working with here, Jack? Well, this, this happened at the, at, the, at, the, at the outbreak of COVID in Australia. So they were strange times. And you know, there were a lot of, wouldn't say shortcuts, but there were a lot of concerns about how to get the government response to work. Government isn't really designed to operate as quickly as that, um, as quickly as was needed to be done. Um, but this, even, even by those standards, this seems quite bizarre. So, as I understand the timing on this, that, that Greg Hunt was advised that Scott Morrison wanted to be the Minister of Health too, uh, and that decision was made in March 2020, as, as you say, a, a difficult time uh, and, and a time of a great unknown uh, in terms of how, of how destructive the pandemic was going to be, but then, and, 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 and assumed the role of Minister for Finance at the same time, uh, and then in April 2021, we're still in the midst of the pandemic, but we had a, 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 a greater view of what was coming and what and what was not. Uh, he uh, was sworn in by the Governor General David Hurley uh, as the uh, Minister for uh, Industry and Resources. Yeah, um, it's it's bizarre. And the, and the Nationals, and the Nationals, the existing Nationals uh, Minister said didn't know, didn't know for a long time. That's very strange. It also strikes me as, on the face of it, as being unnecessary. Uh, there's a thing called the Acts Interpretation Act, which sort of, um, you know, it's a lawyer special. It sort of governs how um, how you look at administrative decisions made by the government. And, and that allows uh, a minister, if, um, uh, if they're, for, for, for any reason, really, to, to appoint somebody to act in their place, to, to act as their delegate. Right. There would be no reason why Health Minister Hunt couldn't appoint the Prime Minister to act as Health Minister while he while he was sick. Well, if he had COVID, case, yeah, that, that was that's, yeah, that's the yeah. design. That was the design of it. That if that if uh, Greg Hunt fell to COVID, uh, then that Scott Morrison would jump forward. But that, that you're saying that basically there 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 is provision for that or, or, already on the books. Yeah. The other thing that's bizarre about it is that normally the appointment of ministers. Um, is mentioned in the government gazette um, and parliaments informed, uh, and none of these things seem to have happened. I was yeah. watching the television this they morning. Weren't. 
a very distinguished professor of constitutional law, Professor Anne Termi, said she'd been looking through the Gazettes and she couldn't find it. Um, she said, I'm not, I'm not absolutely certain it's not there, but I couldn't find it on a, on a, on a read this morning. So, well, you'd um, think if she's had a decent look, it's just not there. Um, there. Yeah, it, 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 seems, it seems unlikely that, that, that it was dealt with in the usual way, that is, by being put in the Government Gazette, Parliament being told about it. None of this seems to have happened. It would seem that just uh, David Hurley, the Governor General, is simply just acting on government advice. So we can't really point a finger at him if, if the Prime Minister says, no, no, "I want you to swear me in quite... as a minister for everything." Uh, he's, uh, he's, got, he's he's obliged to do so. Yeah, he, he 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 would. You would think he would say, "Are you sure?" <laughs> um, uh, but but he would properly act on um, as as he should. Uh, on the Prime Minister's advice. Yeah. And just this morning on the 15th of August, it would uh, seem that the Albanese government is considering whether to probe the legality of Scott Morrison's move. Uh, they're, they're looking at a, a, a Office of Prime Minister and Cabinet in, in investigation into this, as that he sw- secretly swore himself in as Health and Finance Minister <laughs> and Minister for Resources uh, as well during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. It seems it seems unlikely to me that he's done anything illegal. Constitutionally, there's no prevention. There's, there's no, no, no. There's, there's no it's, limit. It's 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 a bit like Gough Whitlam and Lance Barnard um, yeah. uh, getting appointed to all of the ministries in 1972 while they were waiting for the caucus to assemble to elect the ministry. It's a bit like I think um, uh, after the last election. Um, uh, there were just four ministers appointed. That's right. So that uh, uh, Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong could head off to that uh, that meeting in Japan. Correct. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so so these things are unusual, but I don't think that makes them improper or illegal. It just it, it's it's just a bit bizarre. The, the difference, obviously, between those two examples, Whitlam Barnard and, and, and Albanese, uh, and his three ministers being sworn in before the rest of cabinet. Was it we all? We all knew. It was in the newspapers, Jack. It was on the yeah, television. Yeah. And this is yeah, really yeah. bizarre. You don't think uh, Scott Morrison's got got the three or four ball bearings in the hand during the pandemic and go, oh, you know, a bit of a bit of. Uh, Bit of a streak of autocracy. It just it just uh, crept into his uh, methods. Yeah. Oh, well, there was a lot of strange things happened here. The, the bit that I liked in the paper this morning um, uh, was talk about uh, the, the crucial lessons from the nineteen nineteen pandemic. Uh, chief among them was how federalism almost collapsed when the politicians uh-huh. let themselves believe they were medical experts. They needed a mechanism that put the, the expert health advice at the apex of political decision making. Now, I've got to tell you, that's what Australia did wrong during the pandemic was that it did put the health experts at the apex, and that's just wrong. These are political decisions and should have been made by the politicians, not by the health. Well, I, I think the you know the, the the point where I quibble about that is that you know it, it must rely on health advice. So the politicians have to make the announcements, but they must be doing so on the on the basis of the best health no, advice no. they can get. I think that's wrong, absolutely wrong. What you've got to do is you've got to make a political judgment. You listen to what the health experts say, then you make a political judgment as what's best for the country, and that's a political decision. It's not a health decision. 
yeah, I, I would say that it must rely on the health, best health, health advice you can get. I do know, and I've looked at the uh, the 1919 pandemic very closely, Jack, uh, the states as one, states and territories as one at the time, said, yes, we will rely on the health department. The recently, and it had been created, the Federal um, Department of Health had been created, I think, in 2015, but certainly just uh, a, a number of years before the pandemic hit. And they were all prepared and that indeed sat down and signed a document saying that that was going to be the driving force for their decision-making. And they essentially ceded responsibility for a lot of these things to the feds. And that stayed that way in a beautiful piece of uh, uh, conciliation uh, <coughs> until a couple of blokes wandered across the Victorian New South Wales border, uh, stepped across the Murray, uh, and uh, and then turned up in Sydney with with uh, with Spanish flu. Spanish flu, yeah. and uh, and then it was all every every state for themselves. And it led to some really bizarre and very bad things. That there were camps on, there were camps outside borders. Um, so the, the the Queenslanders had closed their borders, uh, and uh, anyone who wanted to go in from Queensland couldn't uh, go into Queensland from New South. And, and we are talking about a large number of returned servicemen coming into the country, uh, and they couldn't. So they had these camps, these sort of makeshift camps. There was another one on the South Australian Victorian border and New South Wales border. And um, and uh, and they were just awful, awful places. Um, uh, well, well, well. Uh, I think history will judge uh, what happened during COVID as bizarre as well. I think. Well, I think what I'm saying is that we really hadn't learned a whole lot in in the space of 100 years, Jack, on how on on pandemic management. I think that's my point that that the states got into a shit fight then, and they got into a shit fight this time. And um, uh, and I would never say the High Court can be wrong because it can't. No, it's not a it's, not a but it can be it's mistaken. Like 17th century popes, uh, Jack. Yeah, yeah, but it can be mistaken, and I, and I think they got um, a couple of cases wrong during this because I think that uh, the the Section ninety two freedom of commerce um, between the states should have prevailed over the health advice. Anyway. Um, yeah, look, okay. That's, that's that's something for the historians to argue about later. Yes, it is. But, you know. but getting back to Scott Morrison, does he need to respond to this? I mean, surely he does. He's a member of parliament still for some reason. I don't think. I, I don't think he. There's nothing to compel him to respond to this, um, uh, apart from embarrassment. Yeah, that's just it. I mean, the guy basically hasn't made a, a public utterance. Um, besides a few paid speeches in Japan and what have you, has made a, a, a public utterance since becoming an MP and, and uh, sitting up in the back and the, and the odds and the odd sermon at, at evangelical church. Oh well, you know that's 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 uh, that's that's a normal Sunday morning, uh, but um, not, not, not for every me, time he's been approached by, by journalists for comment on on a range of matters, he's gone not not talking about it. I think he really does need. Yes, I know there's no there's no legal compulsion on him, but I think he really does need to come forward and say, "Yes, it happened, and this is why I did it." Um, and uh, because it, well, it's 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 not just him. It, it appears that he was acting on um, 
uh, advice from Christian Porter, who was Attorney General at the time. Yeah, so, that, that, um, that's certainly been, uh, I must say that this this whole matter has been revealed as a result of uh, Simon Benson's book, uh, uh, Political Editor at the Australian, and, and Simon's, uh, Simon, uh, Simon's book uh, was, extra, or an extract of it, was, was published in the Weekend Australian, and and yes, that's quite true that, that Morrison had acted under the advice of Christian Porter, who's no longer a member of Parliament. But yeah, it just is the strangest thing. You would you would think that there is a, 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 some likelihood that that advice from Christian Porter will find its way into the newspaper by some mysterious means um, <laughs> Very in likely. the next little while. Off the back of the track, look at what we got here. Yeah, very, very strange indeed, Jack. Now, look, uh, we're going to uh, turn our attention now to listener letters, and it appears that we have a huge audience amongst uh, the rural people and farmers in particular, Jack, uh, on on Hard Hats and High Viz. Uh, We heard from Lawrence a while back... um, uh, and well, you might have grown up in the wilds of Wedgabar, <laughs> um, uh, but I'm I'm a country boy through and through, you know. Uh, or it was. Talk, talk about your uh, reservoir. Talk about your, uh, your your criminal element there, Jack. I tell yeah, you what, yeah, you know, yeah. Mel- Mel- the, the papers in Melbourne just if you were a, a, a crook wanted or had been charged and you came from Reservoir, they just didn't even bother putting it. They would only they would only give you a suburb if you weren't from Reservoir, you know, because everyone. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Lawrence, um, Lawrence Rice, to us, just in regard to your comments uh, on Landline on the ABC TV show, and uh, and and another, and another listener has written us a similar letter. Uh, I'm not surprised, he says, that there are some people in Hong Kong who are fans. Landline's target audience is urban, and like most of ABC, is slanted more towards the progressive side. I wouldn't say it's compulsory viewing for actual farmers. There is some good ag current affairs and market information, a few great human family stories, but also preponderance of others, highlighting the favoured buzzwords buzzwords like sustainable, carbon, organic, non-industrial ag, regenerative, paddock to plate, food provenance. Yes, these are buzzwords in the agricultural industry, Jack. As I'm a farmer from central west New South Wales, Lawrence says, who has been involved in the land care movement for 30 years, that's not all bad. The vast majority of farmers I deal with are continually trying to improve their property's natural assets. It's just a shame it doesn't use the platform it has to dispel some of the urban ag myths. Converting cotton farms to hemp production wouldn't save the rivers. Almond milk isn't environmentally friendly. And as Sri Lanka proved, taking all of agricultural back 50, agriculture back 50 years will just mean more price increases, more hungry people and social dislocation. I much prefer the rural stories put together by the network of regional radio reporters that's put to air on the ABC in the country hour between 12 noon and 1pm. And he goes on to give us the a country bit of hour. I grew, I grew up listening to the country hour. Um, yes, uh, I've, I've listened to it uh, numerous times, particularly on long trips um, in, uh, in, in into New South Wales and Victoria. Um, so yes, yeah, I, I, well, 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 Lawrence, Lawrence does make some good. He points. does some, I mean, make some very good points. But I'll just go on and read you a, 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 a letter from Chrissy, uh, who essentially makes the same point. Um, she thinks she, she was referring to the condition release program and a, and a program that was just made about the Uluru statement what that's about. But she goes on, a bit of feedback for the two jacks regarding landline. 
My husband and I are farmers. We rarely watch Landline. And in fact, we don't often listen to the rural reports on our local ABC radio. They have an obvious bias towards organic and regenerative farming and don't correct misinformation discussed by the people they interview on these topics. The organic and regenerative farm in farming industry is full of anti-vaxxers. I want to talk about that in a minute because he's absolutely spot on, Jack. And conspiracy theorists, which makes me wonder why the ABC would give them so much time. Very lovely letter from Chrissy, where she, she did say in regard to the conditional release program that she hoped we would go back to swearing again because we were off the swearing this week. And I can promise Chrissy that we will be. Um, but... Um, uh, but yeah, two 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 of our uh, our farming listeners there are, are making um, well, making good points. They're making actually. good points that that are in support of each other. That the uh, program landline is fixated on um, organic and regenerative farming, and uh, and and, and uh, not focusing enough on, I guess, what we would call mainstream farming, Jack. Well, uh, I'm, I'm right on their side. Organic's just a word that means cost twice as much and rubbish quality, you know. I, look, I do want to talk about this. It is a conditional release program. Um, it is a conditional release program in the wheelhouse there. But uh, we do find this too, that organic farming and and regenerative farming, which for, for our urban listeners is, is, is basically this sort of holistic approach to farming, reduction of fertilisers, um, uh, improving the soil, improving the environment you farm in. It is replete with anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists, Jack. And we see that at a retail level where organic, you know, where there's an organic market, for example. Oh, you can, um, uh, it, it, they've done this in the United States. If you, if you plot um, uh, the anti-children's um, uh, vaccine, the, uh, people who won't take the MMI, uh, MMR... Or won't let uh, their kids take it. Won't let their, kid, mm. won't, won't let their kids do it. If you plot those, um, they all cluster around Whole Foods stores. Yeah, I know. I mean, look, we, got, we had one in Barrel here, Jack, where, you know, it was, it was shut down during lockdown, but they continued to open. And then, then they had problems with police because... Uh, anyone who walked in with it wearing a mask was 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 basically told to get out, <laughs> and and, uh, and then it led to a, a rather well not an amusing scene, but it was a sort of cataclysmic scene where one of the, uh, the fellows uh, basically reached to take off the mask of a New South Wales police officer, and you don't do that, Jack. Oh yes, I remember that. Yeah, you no, don't. No, yeah, no. you don't do that, Jack. You know, and and I think he was uh, ultimately charged with uh, with uh, assault police. Um, and, and it just showed, you know, that there's this, this very strong connection with organic farming and that anti-vax movement that's been a blight on Australian society since, uh, well, going back many years, but uh, intensifying uh, since, uh, uh, since the arrival of the pandemic in 2020. Oh, Jack, it, go, Jack, it goes back, right back to the anti-fluoride people. Well, you might have seen, Jack, uh, that... Uh, um, yes, well, the anti-fluoride people. Yeah, so there, there's a, there's a very strong link there with the anti-daylight savings people in Queensland, Jack. Yeah, very strong. Yeah, uh, and, and yes, if you if you head down to head up to Byron, or in your case down to Byron, uh, you'll find that uh, there are many people there who think uh, uh, fluoride is the devil's work. Um, complete and utter nonsense that it is. Um, uh, <clears throat> Yeah, so there is that, that, that very strong connection. Um, uh, oh, look. These, these used to be popular views 
right back in the, an organisation that you will remember, I'm sure, called the League of Rights. Yes, yes, I do. In fact, uh, I uh, which, which date date but dates back to the late sixties, early seventies. I studied them in sociology, Jack. You weren't lucky enough to study sociology. Um, let me tell you. No, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm afraid I, I didn't get that benefit. No, <laughs> uh, it was all about uh, you, you wrote an essay. If you didn't have a really strong Marxist. Uh, tilting it, uh, you weren't going to get marked very well. So um, I, gra- I grasped that, I grasped that uh, precondition pretty quickly. Um, so, so you jumped on board for the duration <laughs> of the course. I pretended to be a Marxist. <laughs> I wouldn't say I was hand on heart, but yeah, I thought, well, you know, I know I, just when you type a sentence up, yeah, you like this, you like this. Anyway. Um, uh, now listen, listen I, I, I got some feedback this week. Oh, too. did you? Yeah, I, I did. just went, yeah, before yeah, yeah, you yeah. start... I just wanted to say uh, from Chrissy, who goes on lovely things, you have created a must-listen podcast for me and I enjoy listening each week. So isn't that nice? Good on you, Chrissy. Excellent, excellent. Now, what's your feedback? More feedback would be better. Now, now I, I got some feedback on. We had a little bit of a, a, a little bit of a dig at Peter Fitzsimons last week. Just a tiny one, we're, and we're not the only Just ones. A, Let's face it. There's a there's a queue no, that forms no. to the left and uh, goes all the way down yeah. to Portland. Yeah, you're you're a little unkind about his books, and all I can say about that is, anybody who can write books that people actually want to buy and read, that's a good. Well, thing. see, that's yeah. why I grind my teeth, Jack. Yeah, because the books I write, they don't sell nearly as well as Peter's. No, so that's you know that's no, that's no. just and, professional and, and, envy. And I don't know where, I don't know whether they're any good because um, haven't managed uh, to buy one. I, I, I haven't, haven't managed, managed to, to no, charge no, off no, to a bookshop no. and join the queue to buy a yeah, Peter yeah. Fitzsimons. No, well, Peter Fitzsimons has some fans, and even amongst his fans, um, uh, um, uh, I got a couple of text messages to saying, "Look, they they really liked us having a, a, a go at him on on the podcast, Good. and they especially liked your column." Uh, in the Australian on Friday, oh, excellent, uh, and I and I'd recommend our listeners have a good read of it. It was a beauty. Um, but one of them pointed out um, what what, uh, what she thought was the best bit of the interview with Jacinta Price was at the end, where he says to her, honestly, in the silent watch of the night, staring oh. at the cracks in the ceiling, yeah. as we all as do, we all do, do you do you ever have any doubts? Do you, do you never think that in the seriously prominent and powerful position you have, you are misusing the platform you have and are actually hurting Indigenous causes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And, um, and the feedback I got was, you know, there's a missing bit there. Um, and I said, what was that? He says, what he doesn't say is, I know I have doubts about uh, whether I'm right. Uh, <laughs> you know why it's missing, Jack? Because he doesn't. I think we he all doesn't. Know. He has no doubts. Once, uh, once, he is, once Peter Fitz comes up with a, a position, that's it. That's it. That, that's absolutely. And everyone and, yeah. and everyone else's position. No yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Wrong. So I yeah, uh, yeah, so, yeah, no. So that so that did make me laugh. And the, and the other one, just 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 to show our listeners that we're not fixated on the people in the nine newspapers. Uh, I was uh, equally taken with a Peter Van Onselen column uh, uh, where, he, where he came out in support of the sin taxes, and I wasn't the least bit surprised <laughs> that he he always looks like um, a sort of a. Uh, one of those temperance preachers, you know, really doesn't he? You know, um, yeah. uh, he's, he's, he's got that pinched look about him. You know? <laughs> uh, 
Well, look, I didn't read the column, which is remiss of me. Um, I would refer our readers or listeners, I should say, to having a read of Chris Kenny's column about Peter Fitz as well. It was very, very good. Uh, and, and, and Chris, of course, is a member of the expert, uh, expert council uh, on bringing the voice uh, bringing the voice to the parliament and to the people, uh, and so yeah, no, well, but the, the Fitz column was a was a, a triumph of a complete lack of self reflection on the part of <laughs> well, the interview, Fitz yeah, <laughs> not, not my goal, yeah. I hope, but yeah, they're absolutely right, and the length of the questions, Jack, you know, this is the thing, a good interviewer, it's a sentence or two, not this long yes. preamble every time. Oh, do you ever wonder when you're staring at the cracks in the ceiling? And oh, 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 oh. you know, you, if you're if you're being interviewed like that, you you're wanting to come in. You've got something to say, and you got to bite your lip for a good two minutes while he finishes the question. Well, that's because the question is more important than the person answering. I've always thought the best interviewer in this country is Richard Feigler, Jack. Now he's a mate. Uh, and uh, and a co-author of mine, so uh, I'll put that up front. But uh, uh, listeners who uh, who uh, listen to the conversations on the ABC and Richard sort of uh, does, I think every second one these days. He used to do them all. Um, he's just one of these guys who knows his subject so well, knows the subject matter so well, and it's really just a, his questions are a way of educing a response from the interview subject every time. It's not. He doesn't want to make a point. He's not there to make points. He's not there to argue a position. He's saying to the interviewer, I want our listeners to hear what you have to say. And that's what makes and a good he, interviewer. And he, he doesn't have to be the star of every uh, every episode. That's the difference. That's the thing, isn't it? It's ego. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. The best. But the, the Peter Van Onselen thing. What did he say? He, I haven't he, read it. He was, he, was, he was acknowledging that there's a lot of people in the Labor Party who, who, who find that the sin taxes are regressive. That is, they're a tax on the poor. Right. You know, uh, and, and that's so true. So when we they talk about sin taxes, we're talking about gaming, uh, alcohol, tobacco. Cigarettes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Um, but the conclusion he seems to come to is that sure they are a tax on the poor, but they're good for the poor people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, and, and who knows? He might have met. He might. He might have met one. You know, at some point in his life. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe someone driving him. Uh, only by accident, you know. I mean, <laughs> All right. Now, Jack, uh, uh, oh, and for our listeners, uh, Jack, uh, Jack reckons. Uh, well, he's put. He's put literally thousands of dollars on the table uh, and he will be buying me a lunch very, very soon um, because Jack doesn't think electric vehicles will take off. Um, and, but um, uh, he's uh, found an enemy, a bitter enemy in Josh Friderberg uh, um, because uh, Josh, Josh is a big spruker for, for EVs. We, we go on, we've got, we've got some stats here in Australia, I think uh, 0.8 of 1% uh, of new vehicles purchased in 2020 were EVs. Now it's up to two, so it's more than doubling every year, but we are coming from a very low basis, but very low basis. Adam Morton in The Guardian says. But now Josh is all over it, mate. Or oh, he was. He was indeed. The thing that concerned me about this is not that he was the federal treasurer at the time he was saying this, but that he's a Carlton supporter. He's Carlton, a good, good, very fine Carlton man. 
Yeah, and, and I'm just beginning to wonder whether Princess Park's going to have um, uh, a charging station out the front there. <laughs> well, you won't be able, to get, the, won't be able to get the car park unless you drive one. Yeah, well, that, that's a concern to me, you know. Um, as I, I, I was a, an habitué of Princess Park back in the days when you could watch the games there. That, uh, that um, I, I said by the end of the year, I think you'd probably by October you'll be paying me, for, it would be buying me a very, very expensive lunch. Uh, okay, well, it might be. But I, I, I haven't got to, got to buy one for Josh as well. You know? <laughs> that's going to cost you a few more, more that's true. Now, 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 now speaking of Carlton, Carlton has there ever been... A better home and away game than the ones coming up. Well, the, the old enemy, Collingwood, got a win to, to be in, uh, and that is presuming that uh, the Western Bulldogs uh, beat uh, Hawthorne uh, in Launceston on Sunday, which is should be a bit of a uh, uh, been a bit of a uh, a, a cruel a cruel sea for a lot of uh, a lot of AFL teams going there. It can be pretty bleak and cold and windy. At Launceston and the Hawks do okay there. It's it, it's country footy. It's, it, yeah. it's 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 not in a it's not in a big stadium. So if the wind's howling, um, it's it's like country footy. There really is a four goal. I win. do remember. I think so. Buddy kicked fifteen against North Melbourne um, there when uh, North <laughs> popped along to Launceston and uh, jogged out, thinking, "Yeah, we might be playing a bit of country footy today." But came up against uh, uh, the Hawks in very fine form, and Buddy uh, Buddy with a kicking bird on. Um, Look, it was a great round of footy, just uh, AFL round 22. Disappointing if you're a Carlton uh, Carlton fan because we fell five points short uh, against Melbourne at the G on Saturday night. Um, uh, Carlton's effort was excellent. I, I, I Really no, uh, no criticism. Should they have hung on to the ball uh, for that last 30 seconds uh, a little better, but Yes, sure, but um, that's just the way it goes. There, there were each side. Jack had had, had three figure tackle counts. Yeah, it was a hot game, uh, and and that takes you back to the old Eagles Swans time. I mean, I'm not putting them in the same uh, in the same league there because uh, uh, West Coast Eagles, well, Melbourne Premiership side, so West Coast Eagles in that era were too, as were the, as were the Swans. But yeah, those you used to get hundred. 100 plus uh, tackle counts fairly regularly, uh, and that happened on Saturday night. Doesn't happen very often in, in footy these days. Carlton must be going with it. Was, it, it, it was real finals footy. It was real finals footy. 3.20 on Sunday, the 21st and, of uh, August. And, Carlton will put the money out and, and play Collingwood. If Collingwood win, they're in the top four. Yeah, so they've got to put the play four, um, yeah. And, and 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 if Carlton Carlton win, they're playing finals. That's exactly right. So they get a few there. They might uh, get a <laughs> get a, get a bit of a following along both sides. Uh, Collingwood, I think, have got a membership rate well into the nineties. And Carlton, it's a home game for Carlton, by the way. Their their uh, their membership's now over eighty thousand. Um, so. Uh, you can't fit 170 in, but uh, they 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 will have probably 90,000 there, Jack. Yeah, which is terrific to see. And and I, I, I watched the Michael Voss interview afterwards, and he said, "Look, just wrapped to be in, wrapped to be in that situation. Great for it. Great for the development of the team and the club. Um, uh, you can't get any better than that." 
I mean, win, lose, or draw, that this sort of experience is absolutely crucial to a you know developing list, play in front of ninety thousand people, in a must-win game with a, with with a lot at stake. So much, yeah. It, it, you call it a must-win, but a lot at stake. Now, um, yeah, look, absolutely right. There'll be a huge crowd there. Can I offer you one scenario, Jack? Carlton beats Collingwood, gets into the finals, finishes eighth. Collingwood fifth. And play again the following week at the G. Yep, could happen. <laughs> it's, uh, it wouldn't be short odds, but it, can, it, it could easily happen. We're not quite sure who's going to... Well, we know Geelong will finish top. That, uh, they're two wins ahead of uh, everybody else. Sydney currently second. Uh, they play uh, They play the I Saints on the yep. weekend. Should win that at, at Marvel, I think that's that. Um, uh, and uh, and then really it depends. Frio should win. You would think Richmond who play uh, Richmond, Richmond, Richmond. I can't remember who they play, but they should win. Uh, they should finish seventh. Um, but that uh, two, three, four, five, six is really up for grabs at the moment. It is indeed. Uh, should be a cracking final series. Yeah, indeed. I mean. You've seen Geelong play a few times now. I've seen them play probably eight or ten times this year. Are they really two games better than uh, Sydney, Melbourne, etc.? Um, Brisbane well, Lions. The, 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 the three sides who seem to be going best at the moment to me are probably Geelong, Sydney, and Richmond. Well, Geelong, yeah, they haven't had a loss for a long time. They, they their contested footy game just looks to be a little bit better than everybody else's and harder, longer, if you like, Jack. Uh, and uh, and there's no shortage of, no shortage of talent uh, up up forward uh, with the two big blokes there. Uh, but also Tyson Stengel has just been and has been a, a recruit this year to Geelong who's uh, just been a goal kicking machine and, and this is huge active uh, small forward. Uh, there's not a lot wrong anywhere. Uh, when you look at them, their defence is outstanding with Stewart and uh, De Conning as their tools. They don't seem to have a weakness to me. But as you pointed out in our pre in our in our pre show chat, uh, they'll be playing their finals at the G, not at Cadinia Park. Yes, so I believe. I believe because of the building works down there that um, there will be no. Um, Tripping down to Cadenia Park to uh, to play a final. Can't have a final where when you kick a goal, they've got a workman <laughs> from the building site go and get the footy. Can't have that. No, no, no. All right. No, that's terrific. Uh, and thank you very much, Jack. And thank you for our listeners' letters. Thank you, Chrissy, and thank you, Lawrence. Um, uh, and uh, that is the show for today. Other than to say, we do want your feedback and uh, we would love to hear, even if it's vicious and awful and threatening we would love to hear from you on the condition release program at gmail.com drop us a line anytime tell us if you're enjoying the show or if you're not and where we can improve um so uh yes we would love to hear from you anyway you can hit me up on twitter as well at jack the insider my dms are open jack wonderful to have you along what's on in hong kong this week mate Oh, it's still hot and steamy, but you know, we're, 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 September's the turnaround turnaround month. It starts oh, getting a little bit. And, and 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 are they going to have the super race? Is that going going ahead or no announcement yet? Oh, the, the, the sevens. Oh, seven. Sorry, uh, God. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, uh, the 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 sevens are scheduled for November. 
um, and they and they keep telling us they're going to have it going to happen, but there are a few cynics around town who think it's just not going to work. But It'll be a dry old weekend in Hong Kong that weekend, Jack. Well, it's um, it's you know the, the the changes in the quarantine law, which is now three days um, uh, hotel quarantine and four days uh, based at home, but you're allowed to go out anywhere else pretty much apart from a gym, a pub, or a restaurant. Um, that's going to make things a little bit easier for people coming in and out of the country, for Hong Kongers coming in yeah. and out of the country, but it's not going to do anything for the oh, tourists. I don't, tourism I don't think there's any appetite in team sport for to go back to the old COVID bubbles anymore. We we saw Meg Lanning, um, um, the uh, captain of uh, the Australian women's cricket team. Uh, she's jumped out of the game. You would have seen that, Jack. Uh, she's just uh, resting and, and, and saying uh, publicly that she wants to spend some time on herself I make a very good argument that she's been the most successful captain of any team sport um, uh, in the world basically any code, any any sport um, she's uh, basically rounded off a very tough season often a, a very tough few years uh, winning the uh, World Cup uh, T20 winning the uh, 50 over World Cup and then winning the Ashes and most of that spent in COVID bubbles. Yeah, I, I, I personally, I doubt that they're going to persuade enough teams to want to come up here and be in a bubble here um, while the sevens are on, even if it's only for a couple of days. Uh, fair enough. Uh, and, they cer- and, and they certainly won't persuade. I mean, the sevens relies on a lot of people coming back to Hong Kong or visiting Hong Kong um, uh, um, to make it the big event it is. Uh, and that's just not going to happen unless the quarantine rules change. Fair enough. Now, I just want you to uh, respond to my hyperbole, Jack. Is Meg Lanning the best best captain of any of any sport going around, and has been for the last few years? Certainly, she's she, she's. Uh, I think she's captained Australia more times than any uh, any captain of Australia, with the exception of uh, R. Ponting and I think S. Ward. Might be no, might be Alan Border. Um, but yeah, she's just been superb. Done a great job. Yeah, all right. Thanks very much, Jack. We'll catch you next week on Hard Hats and High Vis. See you later, listeners. Cheers.